Please take your Bibles and go to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 7, Matthew 7. If you're visiting with us and you need to pull out a Bible, there's one in the chair in front of you or next to that chair, a black Bible, and go towards the back of that and find page 5, page 5. You'll find Matthew chapter 7. We're going to study Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 12 this morning. Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 12. Page 5 in that black Bible. I'm going to read and then we'll jump in with both feet. Matthew chapter 5, excuse me, Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. Do not judge lest you be judged. For in the judgment you judge, you will be judged. And in the standard, or in the measure, which you measure, it will be measured to you. And why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the beam of wood that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take this back out of your eye? And look, the beam of wood is in your own eye. Hypocrite. Take first the beam of wood out of your own eye. And then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give what is holy to dogs and do not throw your pearls before swine lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For all the ones who ask receive and the one who seeks finds And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or what man is there among you? When his son asks him for bread, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for fish, will he give him a snake? Therefore, if you, being evil, know to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your Father who is in heaven give good to those who ask him? Therefore, however you want people to do unto you in the same way you do to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Nine useful strategies to dealing with difficult people at work. That was the title of the article, uh, businessinsider.com. Nine useful, useful strategies to deal with difficult people at work. Number one, be calm. Number two, understand the person's intentions. Number three, get some perspective from others. Number four, let the person know where you're coming from. Number five, build a rapport. Number six, treat the person with respect. Number seven, focus on what can be actioned upon. Number eight, ignore. Number nine, escalate to a higher authority for resolution. So there's nine strategies for you to be able to deal with difficult people at work. Interesting. Jesus has a different way to deal with, sometimes difficult, people. In unexpected ways, mind you. Which shows another aspect of living out the gospel kingdom in our lives. So the driving force of Matthew's gospel is to bow down and worship Jesus, the Messiah, King of Israel. And as we come to this part of the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 7, verses 1 through 12, we see how gospel kingdom living is relational living. 
It's dealing with relationships. It's dealing with people. Gospel kingdom living is relational living. Let me put it in a long statement for you. Gospel kingdom living gives us practical ways we deal with people in everyday life. Specifically with church members and with Jesus haters. In all aspects of gospel kingdom living, we ask the Father for help so that we treat others as we want to be treated. This is a summary statement of verses 1 through 12. This is what Jesus is teaching his hearers or his readers. But mind you, all of it is an outflow of the gospel. I'm not going to give you four ways on how you can deal with people. I'm not going to do that. That's not what Jesus is doing here. This is an outflow of the gospel having taken shape and form in your life. This goes all the way back to chapter 3, verse 2 of Matthew, where John the Baptist said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This goes back to chapter 4, verse 17 of Matthew's gospel, where Jesus said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, trust Christ, the king is here. And when you respond to that gospel message, these things start to take place in your life. These different aspects start to form and shape in your life. This is an outflow of it, friends. All of this gospel kingdom living that deals with relationships is an outflow of the gospel. This is not a moralistic type sermon. The Sermon on the Mount is not moralism. It is an outflow of God's work in your life and in mine. Let me give you some other statements to help unpack this. God's approval, blessing, comes as we live out the values of his gospel kingdom, values that reflect our allegiance to our Messiah King. It's a distinct, alternative, challenging way of living in this world. These are personal ethics for faith worshipers of our Messiah King, Jesus. Those who listen to Jesus' words and live by them, display to the world the values of God's rule and reign in their lives so that they're salt and they're light to the world. This is true gospel kingdom living. This is living for our king. Jesus' sermon tells Christians, those who repented and responded in trustful worship to the gospel of the kingdom, how to daily live out God's rule and reign in their lives. This is what it means to live under the law of Christ. We have a whole new way of thinking now as Christians, as followers of our King. So God's gracious work began by Him creating these characteristics in the lives of those who worship His Messiah, King, Son. And yet though God has created these traits in us, Here in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus exhorts us to cultivate them as part of our love and commitment to him. So God does this work. You respond to the gospel. That's why I prayed that a few moments ago. God in his mercy saves us and he changes us. 
When you respond to the gospel, God creates these traits in you and plants that in you, and then he says, begin to cultivate these characteristics in your life. So it's a response of our love for Jesus. It's a response of our commitment to Christ. So in other words, if you're thinking that this message is how you can deal with difficult people, how you can deal with people in general, that's fine, but realize that this is gonna be an outflow of the gospel message that should be taking place in your life, and if the gospel has not implanted itself in your life, then you're just a moralistic person who's gonna end up going to hell anyways. Does that make sense? True disciples, true disciples of Jesus, true gospel kingdom living, true disciples live lives, their lives are the true original tent of the law which is now seen in and through the eyes of the true authority of the law, the Messiah King of Israel. See what Jesus does here in the Sermon on the Mount He gave the original true intent of the law calling to a true righteousness based solely on grace and this living, gospel kingdom living is enabled by the Holy Spirit. It's the only way this can happen. This is not moralistic living. Let me, if I could, in a couple statements, sum up for you chapter 5 verse 3 all the way to chapter 6 verse 34. We are a God-dependent, affliction-broken, humble-driven, Christ-exalting, mercy-loving, pure-living, peacemaking way of people who live this way. That was a long breath. We as followers of our Messiah King live this way. Specifically, we have upright living in anger, in lust, in our marriages, honesty, generosity, charity. We do things for the Father's approval. Our worship is for Him. We make Him first and foremost. We don't worry about the things of this world. We deal with our greed for this world and anxiety that happens in this world. That's summed up chapter 5, verse 3, all the way to chapter 6, verse 34. So now, Jesus turned to judgmentalism coupled with a warning about being gullible and then a summation statement and then asking God for help. So what's the connection of this section with the previous? This is how disciples of Christ, followers of their Messiah King, this is how we deal with people opposite to the religious leaders. The religious leaders of Jesus' day. Remember what Jesus says in chapter 5, verse 17. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. They just go by these legalistic standards. You have to embrace me as your ruler and as your king, says Jesus. And your way of life will be different. Your way of living will change. So, gobble, gobble, gobble. Chapter 7, verses 1 through 5, first dealing with church members. You might say, well, why do you say church members? Because Jesus says, brother. Or if you want to say a fellow Christian, you can say dealing with Christians. You could do that. I'm being, I'm being more specific. If you're a member of a church, this is how we should be treating each other. But you can go beyond that. Of course you can. 
Christians in general, and you could even say in reference to non-Christians, but again, the nuance of what Jesus says here is a brother or a sister in the Lord. Verse three, right? So notice how he begins. Do not judge lest you be judged. So the prohibition not to judge, dealing with church members, the prohibition not to judge, that is being just like the religious leaders who were judgmental. This verse, chapter seven, verse one, is probably one of the most, if not the most, misquoted verse in the whole Bible. And yet, it's also one of the things we do the most to each other, especially for us Christians, don't we? Now, what was Jesus not saying? Let's go through this part first, okay? Let's look at the elephant in the room. What was Jesus not saying? Jesus was not promoting ethical relativism. He was not saying we don't ever judge each other. As we will see in a few moments, the speck is still in the eye. One still wants, or should, get the speck out of the eye. How many of you like it when you have an eyelash in your eye? It's not fun, especially if you have contacts on. You feel like there's something cutting your eyeball. It really hurts. It's annoying. You want to get the eyelash out of your eye. We'll look at that in a moment. So this is not what Jesus is saying. So all you kids out there, you can't use this against your parents. Oh, they're judging me. Okay, well, maybe you can. Or maybe you're just being a punk. You, know? you can't use this against authority. They're judging me. That's a scapegoat. And this verse does not have to do with giving people the gospel. People, people use this verse with you. Oh, you're giving me the gospel. You're judging me, right? People have said this to you, probably. I've had them say this to me. So, so I tell people that I'm just a messenger. Let Jesus speak for himself from his word. So this is not what Jesus is saying. Okay, what does he mean by judge? Jesus meant rigid, censorious kind of judging. A judgment that scrutinizes people without a thought at all, a harsh critical, negative spirit. You can never live up to this person's expectations and they make sure you know you will never, never live up to their expectations. That's what Jesus is talking about. That's what he means by judgment. A person is not meeting your standards. A standard is not from God's word, but made up in your own head. Their preferences, coupled with retributive, you're just an idiot kind of attitude. That's what Jesus means by this. Rigid, censorious, uh, harsh, critical, negative spirits. It's just preferences that you have made or I have made law. It's nothing to do with the Bible. We'll find out later how Jesus says you must do 
honest inspection. We must do honest inspection of our own hearts. This is totally necessary in order to have clear discernment with others. And that evaluation of ourselves is done in reference to God's word. And notice verse two gives us the motivation for, it says, in an American standard, in the way you judge, literally, in the judgment you judge, you will be judged. And in the measure you measure, you will be me- it will be measured to you. So what's the motivation? As we do honest inspection of our own hearts, what, what does Jesus say is a motivation for this? God will judge by standards that are not less than the way we judge. If we judge and punish others harshly, what makes us think God will spare us with such mercy? And invited similar judgment in return. Harsh effects will come back upon you. We demand that from God. Mercy. But not from ourselves. True Christians, followers of our Messiah, King Jesus, we will do self-examination before we stand in critical, harsh judgment upon others. And notice how, you know, we get really specific with brothers within a church, but even Christians in general, and even this may apply even to non-Christians as well. What if somebody walks through that door with big, long hair And what are you going to do, Christian, with tattoos and pierced up? What happens if a homosexual comes in here? Two men, they come in here holding hands. What are you going to do? I'm not saying we don't necessarily judge, but do we ostracize them or do we welcome them knowing that they need the gospel just as much as you do? They need grace. I've told people this, I probably need grace more than you. See what I mean? Maybe we can apply it there too. When we are harsh, critical, negative, and judgmental, God will be that to us. Now, not in the sense of the final judgment. I do not believe this is what Jesus means. But throughout our lives, in other words, what goes around comes around. God in his providence will make it so that if we are judgmental, harsh, and critical, people will be harsh, judgmental, and critical of us. Yet, maybe it is the final judgment. It's a question. Are you really in submission to the Messiah King? Are you really in submission to your King Notice how Jesus continues because it's kind of makes you feel awkward, right? When he says this. Well, Jesus makes a funny. Verse three. And why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye but do not notice the beam of wood, literally, that is in your own eye? He makes a funny. He used a ridiculous, crazy humor points illustration story to drive home his points. I mean, I'm thinking about it. You're, you're walking around with a big old beam of wood in your eyes. You say, here, Lord, let me take that 
I mean, take that, uh, you know, that eyelashes in your eye. Right? You know, big old thing hanging out. That's what he's talking about. That's what he's saying. Or how can you say, verse 4, to your brother, notice brother, let me take the speck out of your eye and look. The beam of wood is in your own eye. You can kind of hear the chuckles from the people that when Jesus is saying this. We have the tendency to critique others harshly of their issues while we most gladly excuse ourselves for even greater sin in our lives. The minor versus the major. Jesus says, hypocrite. Look at yourself first and get that beam of wood out of your eye. Look honestly at yourself Deal with your issue and then be available to help your sister or brother with their speck. The speck would be like a a bit of straw, a splinter of wood, something annoying. Take first the beam of wood out of your own eye. He says in verse five, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Jesus never says you don't take the speck out of your brother's eye. He never says that you don't do that. The speck still needs to come out. It's not unimportant. But these are minor shortcomings compared to your blatant issues or your blatant sins. The only way we can give good, just, sound, gracious judgment of each other is to first judge ourselves. Which is why Jesus gave verse 12 of chapter 7. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. This is dealing with church members. This is how we should deal with each other within a local church. I mean, go beyond that with non-Christians, you could say that, so let's go this way and back in. Non-Christians, sure. With Christians, definitely. Within a church, Yes. Remember, this is gospel way of living. This is gospel kingdom living. God is gracious to us, merciful to us in Christ. That's why we show that to each other. Should not God judge us? Should not God condemn us? And yet that's why Jesus, excuse me, Paul says, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander be put away from you, along with all malice, but be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, and what's the motivation? Just as God in Christ has what? Forgiven you. The gospel motivates us to do this, friends. Not because it's the right thing to do. That's moralism. What drives us is the gospel. What drives us is our love for Jesus. What drives us is what we just sang I will never cease to praise you, right? Dealing with church members. Number two, dealing with Jesus haters. And I say, why do you say Jesus haters? You'll see why. I'm not as dumb as I look. Look at verse six. Do not give what is holy to dogs and do not throw your pearls before swine. So notice what Jesus is doing here. On the one side, he says, don't be harsh, but on the flip side, don't be so gullible, lax, or easy. Be mindful of people who are truly evil. 
Now the question comes, what is the thing that is holy? What is that thing? Well, contextually, it's giving good, just judgment towards people. Gracious, generous judging. And yet notice how Jesus says dogs and pigs. I know this is not politically correct, but well, it's just the way it is. In the first century, Jews would refer to dogs and pigs to, as Gentiles. That's what they would think of them as. Dogs and pigs. Dogs, I mean, because um, you didn't have dogs as a pet in the first century. They were scavengers. Maybe they make a fine meal. Cats might be better. No, Susanna? Oh, okay. Uh, that, they were scavengers, though. You didn't have dogs as pets. And if you were a, if they had pigs, if the Jews didn't deal with pigs, it was unclean. So I think because of this, it seems that Jesus referred to the message of the kingdom. We handle the gospel kingdom message delicately, mindful of people who may respond harshly and maliciously. They reject this gospel truth. Then notice what he says. Lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Be discerning, in other words, he's saying. One writer puts it like this. What is precious is not to be given to people who have no appreciation for it. End quote. Exercise discernment and this wisdom and discernment comes only from God's word. How do you get discernment? How do you get wisdom? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Proverbs 1.7 Gospel kingdom living Jesus is saying verses 1 to 6 is not about being an inquisitor nor about being as one writer put it a simpleton. We're not harsh but we're not gullible. We're not censorious. We're not lax. True gospel kingdom living takes the beam of wood out of the eye so as to discern the minor problem of a fellow disciple. What's driving us? The gospel. God should judge us. Remember what Jesus says? In the judgment that you judge, you will be judged. But James says, mercy triumphs over judgment, right? God has shown us mercy in Christ, so that should be the thing that drives us to this. So we are able to discern the minor problems of our fellow disciple. Here's another statement. We'll move on in just a moment. Gospel kingdom living is also discerning of an enemy who may harm the kingdom and his messengers. So to be mindful of our arrogance, we must deal with our ignorance. We must be humble and yet be strong. Humble strength. Okay? So you can sum up verses 1 through 6. Number 3. Asking for help. Now this is odd. Because Jesus is talking about all these things in the uh, Sermon on the Mount and then blah, 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 blah. Chapter 6, verse 19, verse 34. And then he's talking about judging. Don't give what is holy to dogs. And then he goes... Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you'll find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. You're like, oh, wait, what? How does that connect with everything else? 
How does this part connect with the previous sections? I mean, obviously Jesus wanted to encourage the disciples that the Father cares for them. Well, maybe the connection is that prayer is a disciple's resource as they deal with people, with anxiety, with materialism. We have certain needs that we bring before the Father. We're asking for help. So in other words, when you look at verses 7 through 11 of chapter 7, it's actually looking back, not just in terms of judgment, but looking back all the way back to chapter 5, verse 3. God, I need help. I need help for you to cultivate these things in my life. How can I be someone who's God-dependent? How can I be someone who's peace-loving? How can I be someone, how am I able to do this? That's why Jesus says, ask for help. Look at the three commands, followed by the three promises. Verse eight, for the one who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Three commands, ask, seek, knock, followed by three promises and all these three commands, these three commands have to do with prayer, not the will of God, but praying. You're asking for help. Jesus emphasized that the Father meets the needs of those he loves who who emulate him as their Father, who submitted to the rule and reign of their Messiah King. When we pray with the three right priorities, let your name be hallowed, let your kingdom come, let your will be done. Remember that, chapter 6, was verse 9, 10. Jesus assured his followers that their prayers will be efficacious. Look at the promises that that Jesus gives here. And, And we pray, we pray God's promises back to him because God is not a robot. We have a personal relationship with our Father through the Lord Jesus Christ. Dr. Godfrey brought this up last Sunday in the adult Bible study. Pray God's promises back to him. God's not going to be like, oh, I already know that. What are you telling me that for? God's not going to do that. He wants to hear about that because it's a relationship with the Father through the Son. If you think Christianity is just following rules, my friend, you are mistaken. That is not Christianity. That is religion. Or maybe we should put it this way. That's religiosity. A spiritual Holy Spirit's relationship with the fathers through the Lord Jesus Christ, that's Christianity. So we, 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 we pray, that, Father, I'm asking you and you said you, I will receive. Father, I'm seeking you. And you'll say, I'll find. Father, I'm knocking. You will open this. It's about prayer. And He'll give us the help we need so that we can have gospel kingdom living. He'll do it. And and look at what Jesus makes his point, drives his point home again by using these illustrations. uh, Three almost comical rhetorical questions to show the absurdity that the Father won't provide for their needs as they ask within the coming of his kingdom and the fulfillment of his will. It's absurd. 
I mean, think about it. It's crazy. If, if we are praying, let your name be hallowed, let your kingdom come, let your will be done in my life. So I'm going to pray these things in reference to that. It's crazy to think that the Father's not going to provide for us. It's ridiculous. And then, then, then notice what Jesus does, verse 9. What man is there among you? When his son asks him for bread, will he give him a stone? Verse 10, or he asks him for fish, will he give him a snake? The lesser to the greater argument, Jesus used that in chapter 6, verse 26, with uh, the birds, remember? If God provides for the birds, he's going to provide for you. With the lilies of the field, if God provides the lilies and clothes them, he's going to clothe you. He does the same thing here. I mean, think about it. Human parents, though they are evil, won't do such a thing to their kids. I mean, even someone who doesn't know Christ, who hates God, wants nothing to do with God, they're going to take care of their kids, right? I mean, the little kid wants to go get some ice cream. Go get the kid ice cream. Well, maybe he had ice cream last week. So I don't know. No, but still, I mean, that's, they know how to do, meet the basic needs of their children. They know how to give good things to them, right? Of course, Jesus says. I mean, if we do this with our own kids, notice what he says, how much more your Father who is in heaven, he will give good to those who ask him. Stop and think about this. Last week, Daniel and I were talking after the service outside and something struck me as we were talking. Think of this, Christian. As Jesus was preaching the Sermon on the Mount, he had each of you individually and personally in mind. So he was saying to you, Ward, your Heavenly Father will hear you and answer you. Travis, your heavenly father will hear you and answer you. I mean, think about it. He had every single person, all his chosen ones in mind as he was preaching this sermon. Take that personally to heart. He's thinking of you over 2,000 years ago. What a welcome this part of Jesus' sermon is. Our Father is not unaware of our needs. We don't need to persuade Him to give us good things. He promises to supply our needs as we humbly acknowledge our dependence upon Him. Remember the beatitude? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who are God-dependent. He'll answer prayers. He does. He had you in mind. The Father has you in mind. Won't our Father answer our prayers from the depth of His great character of goodness, grace, and love for us, His kids? Now, we might not think His answer is good, but we trust our Father. We brought this up last week, right? Our Father will meet our needs. 
He doesn't mean our wants, the things we'd like to have, or what we think we may need. Nor does it mean we won't have trouble or suffering in this life. God never said that. Because it's not about having these things in this life. It's about having the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, remember what's, what's the motivation to all that we're talking about? I have Jesus. I worship Jesus. What's the point of Matthew's gospel? To bow down and worship Jesus, the Messiah, King of Israel. That's what Matthew's trying to tell us. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. So it's anything, anything. We trust him. So here the question is this. Do we really believe God's word? I mean, do we really believe what it says? Do we really believe it says what it says about our Father? The one and only true God. He is a good, good father. If so, he is good and does good. Psalm 119, verse 68. I was reading that this past week. It's been ingrained in my head. If he is good and does good, then he will only give us good gifts. It just may not correspond to what we think is good. Mm, Right? God is good and he does good always. He just calls us to trust him. Last, and notice how Jesus, he's summing it all up. When all said and done, at the end of the day, he says this, conclusion, not just for chapter seven, verses one through 11, friends, this is a conclusion that goes all the way back to chapter 5 verse 17 even chapter 5 verse 3 this is how disciples of Jesus live their lives this is the way gospel kingdom living should be therefore however you want people to do unto you poeo from the Greek do our practice in the same way you do to them. Notice the positive statement is much more demanding than the negative. He doesn't just say, don't do this to others you won't want them to do to you. Oh, well, that's easy. I'm not going to punch you today. Because <laughs> I don't want you to punch me today. Okay. It goes beyond that. It's a positive statement. Treat other humans just as one would like to be treated by them. This is true upright blameless living. This is truly living out the law of Christ. It's this. And in light of Jesus' rule and reign, chapter 3, verse 2, chapter 4, verse 17, we live out this command. And look at what Jesus says at the end of verse 12. For this is the law and the prophets. How do you sum up the 39 books of the Old Testament? Bam, right there. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That's the law and the prophets. Because when it's all said and done, followers of the Messiah King, the Lord Jesus, will treat all people the way they want to be treated. Now, you've probably heard this. 
Many other religions of the world say something similar, don't they? But the difference with us, within Christianity, is this. Jesus' statement is the true goal of the law. We are to be like Jesus. He is the law authority. These are his words. And who is Jesus? The Messiah, King of Israel, the Messiah, King, Son of God. These are God's words. It's not something that Confucius says or that you see within Buddhism or something that you do within Hinduism or Sikh or Taoism. Fine, 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 blah, 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 whatever. This is different. It's putting Jesus' words into practice and we obey these commands having submitted to Jesus' rule and reign in our lives. The gospel is the very thing that drives everything. He is our Messiah King and we bow to Him in worship. How? How do we do that? We do unto others as we would want them to do to us. An outflow of the gospel at work in us. Jesus didn't come to abolish the law of the prophets. He is the true ultimate interpreter of the law. He's come to fulfill the law. And for those of us who submit to His rule and reign, we now live under Him, the law of our Messiah, the law of our King. Friends, this is true gospel kingdom living. This is upright living. This is living that emulates our Father. This is a God-ruling life. This. 5, 3, 7, 12. Right there. The gospel is taking shape. So it all hinges on the gospel. Have you responded to the gospel today? Or do you think this is just type, moralistic type living? Go ahead, go do your moralistic living, but realize that's nothing to God. You cannot merit anything to God. You are totally obligated to God to be perfect and yet you're not. And he should condemn us and he will. But our hope is in Jesus who lived, he died as a substitute. All of God's wrath was poured out on Jesus in the place of sinners so that you can face the grace, mercy, and love of God when you repent and put all your hope in your Messiah King. Jesus, you are my King, I bow. Come to Jesus, respond to the gospel. It all hinges on the gospel. Gospel kingdom living gives us practical ways we deal with people in everyday life, specifically with church members and Jesus haters and all aspects of God, gospel kingdom living. We ask the Father for help so we treat others as we want to be treated. But it all hinges on the gospel the outflow of the gospel at work in our lives. Spirit of God, we pray that you would enable us as your people, enable us to live this out in our lives. We are weak, we admit that. That's why we go all the way back to chapter five, verse three. We are poor in spirit, We depend upon you, O God. We depend upon you, O Father. We depend upon you, O Spirit. 
Jesus, we once again renew our devotion, our love, our delight in you. You are our king. You are our master. You are our Lord. Be gracious to us. Please keep cultivating these things in our lives. These truths, these traits in our lives. And thank you that you are a God that has saved us and you're a God who changes us more and more into the image of your Son, Father. Keep doing that, we pray. And give us grace as we interact with each other, the Christians, those of the world. Give us your grace to treat the people in the world with grace to speak of your grace. Give us your grace to deal with other Christians in biblical godly ways, but even more so with us as your people in your church here. Grow us. Intertwine us with each other with the gospel as the backing and as the trunk that we will be a firm tree planted in this small town that emulates the gospel beyond just Cottonwood, but throughout the Verde Valley and throughout Arizona, that we would be one of those beacons of light that displays the gospel of Jesus, that displays that you're a just God. We are sinners, but Jesus, you died for us. We repent and we trust you, Messiah King. If you would please take this few moments. We will continue on in our service. We'll do our time of giving. Yes, we'll, we'll sing a couple more songs. We'll pray. But just a few moments right now between you and the Lord. Let the words that we've looked at from Matthew, let them penetrate your soul. That you would ponder, you would think. You would let your mind dwell on these things. Again, like I said, after a few moments, we'll do those other things. But just a few moments. Let it penetrate your heart and be encouraged. Encourage yourself with the gospel. If you have to, say it out loud to yourself. God, you're just, I'm a sinner. Jesus, thank you for dying for me. I repent, I trust you, Messiah. I trust you, my King. Let your mind